Welcome to Ride Every Stride, episode 35. Welcome to Ride Every Stride with Van Hargis. This is a podcast about horsemanship and more. Our goal is to educate, motivate, inspire, and entertain you through an exploration of everything horsemanship and the intersection of horsemanship and humanship. My name is Laura McClellan, and I'm your co-host on Ride Every Stride, and I am pleased to be back with Master Horseman Van Hargis. How you doing, Van? Hey there, Laura. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. How's everything in your world? It's doing great. Happy to be alive. <laughs> Same here. Isn't that a good deal? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what are we talking about today, Van? Well, today we're going to talk about, um, I, I hope this is not controversial, but I got to thinking about it after I kind of wrote down the title, you know, bend them to keep them straight. That's what we're going to be talking about. But what the heck does that mean? And the reason I'm concerned about the controversy is because over the last, I'm going to say at least 10 years, maybe even longer, I think it has actually been longer, we have been inundated with bending your horses, flexing your horses, and all of these things, you know. And, and the question is, is that when and why do we do these things? And I'm, I'm going to share a story, Laura, that several years ago, I had an opportunity to do a clinic with Jack Brainerd. He's been one of my heroes since I was a whopping nine years old. Jack happened to be one of the, the judges, I guess you could say, at, at a 4-H judging contest. And kind of give everybody a little bit of history how that happens. At a at a 4-H judging contest, we're talking about judging horses, and um, they lead four horses in, in the arena. And your job as a 4-H student is to go and place the horses first, second, third, and fourth. Well, J- uh, Jack happened to be one of the judges there one year, and he went in and placed the horses first, second, third, and fourth, along with a few other experts in the industry. And then... Um, those are considered the perfect scores. Whatever the judges come up with, those are the perfect scores. Our job as 4-H contestants was to come in there and place those horses, and hopefully our placings match the judges' placings. Okay, all that to say this is that when I went to the very first judging contest I went to, I wasn't really meant to be in it. I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to sign up and go in there and judge all the horses because, you see, my mom and my stepfather were the 4-H leaders, and I was just tagging along you got to be at least nine years old to be in the competition. Well, I was almost nine, but I wasn't really qualified to be in the competition, but I was anyway. And um, the reason Jack became one of my heroes at that point in time is that once they found out that I was too young, he didn't want to discourage me. So he let me kind of hang around with him the rest of the day and fill out the, fill out the little judges cards anyway. And then he told me whether or not I did well or I didn't do well. Well, I just ever since then, I just thought that he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, what a great hero to, instead of dogging a little kid, he instead encouraged me and let me tag along and hang out with him that day. So ever since then, uh, Jack Brainerd has been a really good hero. It wasn't until years later that I found out that he was like a phenomenal master horseman. I mean, I always brag about the guy saying, that I think Jack Brainerd has probably trained more trainers than most of us have trained horses. So he's very highly respected amongst other trainers. Well, all that to say this. Finally, years, many years later, I had an opportunity to do a clinic in Abilene, Texas for the Stock Horse of Texas Association. And while I was there, they asked, hey, Van, would you mind having a a co-trainer, a co-clinician with you? And uh, so, of course not. 
by the way, who is it? It's Jack Brainerd. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, how, <laughs> how awesome can that be to actually, you know, share the proverbial stage with your hero? I mean, I just thought that was awesome. I mean, I was literally starstruck the entire clinic. Well, I'm yelling something out there at one of the clinic participants. And as I'm yelling those, those things out there, you know, do this and do that and bend that horse and flex that horse. And, and out of the corner of my eye, I see Jack shaking his head. And I'm thinking, oops, I must have said something wrong. So I quietly ease over a little bit closer to Jack and said, Jack, turn your microphone off. So he reached down and turned his microphone off, said, Jack, did I say something wrong? He said, well, no, why? I said, well, I just saw you shaking your head. He goes, oh, no, I liked what you said. What you said was good. He said, "Uh, we'll we'll talk about it later at supper. But no, I I liked what you said. So why were you shaking your head? He goes, well, I'm just afraid, man, I'm going to die before I learn everything I want to learn about these darn horses. And I just thought that was so awesome. I mean, here's another lesson for us is that, number one, we're never too old to learn. Because at that time, Jack would have probably been at least in his mid-80s. And for somebody who has trained as many trainers as he has and has you know, been the master that he has for so long, and yet he's still learning, he's still not necessarily – I didn't tell him anything new. He just liked the way that I happened to say it and the way I expressed it. And I just thought that was so cool for a guy at that level to always be the student. Well, as he promised that night, we were in a meeting, you know, with the stock course of Texas folks. And uh, Jack was like, hey, I, I told you I was going to tell you, you know, a little bit more of my thoughts on what you were saying out there to that one lady, you know, why you're wanting her to bend the horse and flex the horse and all this. So, Van, let me ask you, why do, why do we do all that stuff? And again, I'm thinking, well, it keeps them softer. It makes them lighter. It uh, teaches them to be more supple. In other words, I was giving all the answers that I would expect one of my students to give to me if I had asked that question. And so I'm just blurting out all this stuff. But I got to tell you, Laura, I didn't have a clue. I mean, I didn't know what I was saying. I'm just blurting out all these things that were maybe what you could consider buzzwords or buzz phrases. Quite frankly, I think we're all guilty of that. Sometimes we really don't know what we're talking about. We just know just enough that we can kind of get involved with a conversation. The problem is that the conversation I'm having is with the master. So, Knowing that, I began to realize, too, you know what? I bet you he's got something he's going to teach me here. So after giving him all those answers, those patent answers, those buzzword responses, Jack looked at me and says, you know, Van, every one of those are right. But why do we do those things? And I thought, well, I thought I just answered all those questions. And he says, no, the long-term benefit of bending and flexing our horses is to keep them straight. Now, man, I'm telling you, at first, that just went clean over my head. I'm thinking, what the heck? You bend them and you flex them to do what? To keep them straight. So why do we bend and flex them all the time? And and, and I'm thinking to keep them straight. Well, so, Mr. Jack, the, what, why do we want them straight? Because everything we want a horse to do, Van, he can do better when he's straight. Stop. Turn. Do rollbacks. Everything we want a horse to do, it starts off with him being balanced and him being straight. So why do we bend and flex our horses? For all those things we said before, to get them soft, to get them supple, to get them more responsive to the bit, all of those things are correct, but the end result is to keep them straight. Now, I'm going to go a little bit further with that. So if we're bending them to keep them straight, then why bend them? Is it just to get them soft on the bit? And if so, who cares if he's soft on the bit to the right or to the left or to the vertical, if all we want him to do is be straight? You see, we have to understand, again, the way horses learn. You know, we talk about this in previous episodes. I'll be talking about it until I'm as old as Jack Brainerd is. 
the reason that we bend and flex our horses is to keep them straight. But the reason also we bend and flex them is so that they understand what straightness is not. So when you bend your horse's nose, let's say you bend his nose to the right, I'm going to ask you, is it easier for the horse to walk a straight line with his nose directly in front of his shoulders? Or is it easier for the horse to walk a straight line with his nose flexed to the right? And the answer is, it's easier for the horse to walk a straight line with his nose or is directly in front of his shoulders. So why do we bend him to the right? Yes, we want to get him soft. We want to get him supple. We want to get him responsive. We want to get him to where he's willing to put his nose over there. But if we understand how horses learn, and that's through the release of that pressure. In other words, the minute he get his nose to the right, and if he does so softly, supply, and relaxed, then we let him go. When we let him go, what does he seek out? Straightness. Straightness. And what do we want? Straightness. So why do we bend and flex our horses? Straightness. So all those other answers are correct. You want to get a horse to flex to the right. And then the very moment that he does, you want to let him go. And by doing so, you actually teach the horse that when he's soft and he's supple and he gives to you, you're going to let him go. That's part of the story. But the most important aspect of the story is that when we release him, not only does he get the understanding that when he's soft, he gets released quicker, but when he is released, he gets to be left alone. He gets to be straight. He gets to be balanced. Balanced is what he wants to be. So that's going to be his ultimate reward is when he's balanced. So when he's not balanced, he's not traveling straight. He's kind of crooked in some way or the other. I don't care if it's he's leaning in and dropping a shoulder, this horsemanship terms, that if he's leaning in a circle or if he's dropping a shoulder in a circle or if he's bulging out to the circle. In other words, whatever he's doing, if it's not straightness, in other words, he's not on the line in which we're riding, then how do we get him to seek out that line? We make that line more difficult. In other words, we bend him to the right or we bend him to the left or we bend him vertically. We, we create a scenario that's a little bit tougher And then when we let him go, not only does he get soft and supple like those other things we want, but ultimately he realizes that the easiest job we're giving him is the opportunity to be straight. So isn't that cool? I just think that was the coolest thing since sliced bread. And Jack explained all that to me that night. And from then on, it was just absolutely amazing. And I couldn't wait to get home and start practicing those things. And the more that I practiced them, the more I began to realize oh my goodness, my horses are getting better and better and better, not because I'm getting better at flexing and bending, but because I understand why the heck I'm doing it. And I also understand my ultimate goal. I don't want to go to Hunt County. I want to get to Laura's house. (laughs) You see, so in other words, I want to get more specific. I don't want to just go to that area. I want to get more specific to that area. I want to get very, very specific of what my goal truly is. And so by learning how and why to ask, because I know very specifically what the correct answer is. I'm not going to reward the horse until I've got the correct answer. But what is my motivation to getting the correct answer? Get him what he wants, which is to be straight. So this is a, I, I'm, I'm listening and I'm trying to kind of grasp all this because obviously I'm coming from a very much a rookie perspective trying to comprehend something that you've thought about and worked on for years. How does this sort of play out in the day-to-day of if I'm working with my horse? How would I put this into practice, both understanding what you're talking about, but actually putting it into practice? Well, let's just look at, let's look at a practical use. Let's say 
we're the average person out there and we're going to go just on a, a trail ride with our friends. Okay. To go on a trail ride with our friends, we wouldn't want a horse to just zigzag all over the place, would we? But yet, how are we going to keep him from zigzagging? And maybe if we could just get the horse to be a little bit softer in the face. And what I mean by that is, is that when I pick up on the right rein, I want to see the horse uh, yield to that pressure just ever so slightly. In other words, just give to that. And eventually I could put his nose further to the right. And eventually I could put his nose literally in my lap if I wanted to. But nonetheless, that's that's very extreme. But at the same time, that's getting the horse to soften up. And then as a result of that, the ultimate reward for him is when I let him go. And let's say when I let him go, now he zigs to the left. Not a problem. Now let's flex him to the left. And we flex him to the left a little bit. We get him softer and all those proverbial things to the left. And we let him go. And then he gets to go straight. In other words, he's allowed to go straight. That's the easiest thing for him to do. And coincidentally, it's what we want him to do. So after a while, he begins to seek out that in which we want. So now we're getting closer and closer onto the same page. So there's the practical reason for at least one practical reason of doing that. The other reason is that we're also teaching the horse, not just the straightness aspect, we're teaching the horse that we are offering him the easiest job he can do, which is to be balanced and to be straight. And what do I mean by being balanced? What I mean by balanced is, is that obviously the horse is, you know, a four-legged animal. We want to see him when he's walking, trotting, and even cantering. We want to see him being balanced over all four feet. Oh, but wait a minute. Didn't you say canter, Van? Well, wait a minute. How can he be balanced on all four feet when cantering is a three-beat gait? Okay, you got me. (laughs) But even in the reality of cantering, the horse still needs to be balanced. And what I mean by balanced is, is that if we understand the canter, if he's in the left lead, We only want his hips to slightly shifted to the left. And then if he's traveling in a straight line, the straight line in which we want him to travel, then we know again that he's balanced. If it feels like he's leaning one direction or the other, or or even feels like he's, as weird as it may sound, running downhill when, when he's not running downhill, then we also realize he's got maybe a little bit too much weight on his shoulders and what we can do to pick him up to do more balance. In other words, getting back over his back end better. All of those things are done through getting the horse to be light and supple in the face but also to get the horse to be balanced. So the aspect of and the concept of bending them and flexing them is just so they can seek out that balance. We call it straightness because when the horse is straight, they are probably more balanced at that point in time than they ever are. Whether we're riding them or we're not, the horse is more balanced when they're straight. Now, I hope that kind of semi answers the question, but I want to get to another thing real quick. Another thing is, well, how do we get that? Okay. For those of you who's ever ridden with me, especially at home, but for those who have seen me do presentations at horse expos and for anybody that's ever been to one of my clinics, you've heard me say probably a hundred times or more, I want to work a horse to 120% so that a hundred percent seems easy. Okay. What is a hundred percent? A hundred percent is what, whatever it is that I'm seeking out. I want that to be considered my ultimate goal. That's my hundred percent. So how am I going to get him to achieve 100%? I'm going to ask 120% of my horse. Let's say, for example, I want the horse to seek out straightness. In other words, I want his head and neck directly in front of his shoulders. Okay. So how do you get him straighter than straight? Well, you take him away from straight. So I'm going to bend his nose to the left at a far enough angle that it's about 120% more than what I really want him to be, which would be straight. So I'm going to flex him pretty hard to the left and keep him there for a little while until he really wants me to let him go. And at that point in time, I'm going to let him go. And what he's going to seek out 
is that 100%. I would mm. never expect a horse to travel around with his nose jacked over to the left. Nor would I really expect a horse to travel around with his nose jacked over to the right. Nor would I ever really expect a horse to travel around with his head and neck over flexed. In other words, beyond the vertical. And what I mean by that is when a horse is traveling in a straight line, sometimes you'll see their face be perfectly vertical to the ground, perpendicular to the ground. That's almost near perfection with, with almost any discipline that we're doing. But sometimes I'll ask a horse to bring his nose back behind the vertical. In other words, I'll bring his nose even closer to his chin than what is anywhere close to being normal and balanced for the horse. Therefore, when I let him go, he's going to think that where I really wanted him, in other words, at that 100% spot, oh my gosh, that's easy. Now, it's the same philosophy I had whenever I was playing high school and college football. I never, honestly, I never ran as much in a game as we ran in practice. Our co- and, and the coaches called that conditioning. We called it torture. <laughs> but the, the coaches call that conditioning. And the reason why is that they over-condition you so that no matter how tough and how hard the game is, you've still got plenty left in the gas tank, so to speak. So the same thing, I've just over the years, I've used that championship mentality, that championship training philosophy, and I've applied it to my horsemanship. So whenever I'm wanting something from the horse, I over time figure out how to get just enough from the horse to get 120%. And then when I let him go, he thinks that the stands are full and he's on game day. I mean, that's easy. Game day is easy. And that's what I wanted to seek out. Seek out that game day experience. Seek out that 100% by asking more. And then the 100% becomes his reward. So we overbend him so that we can get him straight. Overbending is 120%, straight is 100%. And so that makes total sense in the context you were just talking about, you know, whether it's a preparation for a game or preparation for a show if if we're working with horses. I can see how that applies for someone who is riding a performance horse and is preparing that horse to perform in the show ring or something like that. Does that same concept of training at 120% so that 100% seems easy, does that apply to those of us who aren't going to compete on our horses, who are, you know, just trail riding or just not competing? Oh, my goodness, I'm glad you asked that question because that's actually a very good question. Many years ago, I mean, for those who, again, who've known me and known my past and know my history, they knew that I kind of grew up as a ranch kid. We were always doing or I was, I was always doing day work for ranches. And as I began to get a little older and as I began to learn a little bit more about horsemanship and getting a horse soft in the face and getting a horse to to travel more balanced and more collected, a lot of the old timers, in other words, a lot of the diehard ranchers, well, Van, you ought to just leave them old horses' faces alone. God created them where they knew how to walk, trot, and lope. You didn't have to teach them to do all that. And man, there was part of me because I had so much respect for those guys. I mean, I'd known most of these guys since I was a little bitty kid. So I had so much respect for them. I'm thinking, oh, man, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm overdoing this on on the ranch horses. Maybe I'm just being annoying to these ranch horses. What would happen if I just left them alone? What would happen if I didn't do those things? I mean, maybe they're right. Well, then I got to noticing we might go to the trailer later. We might pull up to somebody's barn later. And as they were pulling the saddles off a lot of those old ranch gildans, what I began to notice was a lot of those old ranch gildans had very high withers and kind of sagged backs. Huh. What does that have to do with what the heck we're talking about now? Well, I looked at my horse. 
I had a couple of horses that were just as old as theirs, and yet my horse's back was still pretty youthful looking. He didn't look like an old worn out, quote unquote, ranch gilding. He still looked pretty straight across his back. He still looked pretty strong across his back. Why was that? Well, you see, they were exactly right. God created those horses. They can walk, trot, and lope. They don't need our help to do that. That is until we put a 60-pound saddle rig on their back and a 200-pound cowboy in the middle of that. And now if you consider the horse's back a bridge, we put all that weight in the center of that bridge. Isn't that the weakest spot of the bridge is right in the middle? So let's just think. I'm going to go back to another thing we talk about sometimes when I'm talking about understanding collection, flexion, and suppleness. Imagine, if you will, Laura, that I've got two sawhorses, and they're, they're parallel with each other. Across the two sawhorses, I'm going to put a little thin piece of board. Let's call it a one-by-four, and I'm going to tack it. Like, in other words, put like a little bitty nail in one of them, and then I'm going to put another one in the other end. But And, and that's that board is between those sawhorses. But the weird thing is I've left an extension out in front of one of them. Let's call that like a head and neck. So we got a head and neck, a sawhorse, the horse's back, and then another sawhorse. Obviously, the sawhorses represent the horse's front legs and back legs. Now, if I was to go, say, take a 55 or a 50-pound bag of feed, and I set it on the board between the two sawhorses, what's going to happen with that board? It's going to sag, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That weight of that sack is going to cause that bag to, or to cause that board to sag down. Now, anybody that's ever worked with wood or worked with lumber, if we was to just go away and leave that there long enough, and then we came back later and we pulled that bag of feed off, or... If we just put the bag of feet on there, say, oh, maybe an hour or two hours a day, and we took it off, but we did that for days on end. Let's say we started one at two years old, and we quit riding them quite a bit when they're, say, 15 years old. But for two hours a day, for 15 years, we put that 50-pound bag of feed on that board. And then we take the thing off. What happens to that board? It's going to sag because it's going to have what we call memory. Hmm. But what happens if I put that 50-pound bag of feed on that one by four between the two sawhorses, what's going to happen to, if, if the middle part of that board is sagging downward, what happens then to the other end, that extension end? I'll kiss your big toe if it doesn't go up. So what happens then if I push down on that end? What happens to the bag of feed? It rises. You betcha. Now, let's take away the sawboard. Let's take away the one by four. Let's take away all that kind of crap and let's go back to the horse. The reason we teach our horses to get soft and supple in the face is so that we can manipulate their their head and neck. If I can get the horse, we mentioned earlier about being vertical, didn't we? Well, if mm-hmm. I can get that horse to be vertical in the face, I've caused him to flex right up there at the pole, which is right there by his ears. If he flexes there, I'll kiss your big toe again if his neck doesn't arch up. Well, if his neck arches up, what's going to happen to the horse's back? It's going to elevate. If there's a rider on that horse's back, it's going to rise. So what happens is we teach the horse now to travel with his back slightly elevated, at least higher than it would be if we left him totally alone. So why do we bend and flex our horses? We mentioned earlier, bend and flex them left, bend and flex them right. But we also touch briefly on flexing the horse, get him to bend vertically. So what about that backyard guy that's just going to go on a trail ride? Man, I don't give a flying flip about going out there and competing with anybody. I just want to go on a trail ride or just go out there and ride my horse in the pasture. I don't need to worry about all that bending and flexing stuff, and I don't need to worry about all that other stuff. Well, you do, lady, if you care about your horse. If you don't want to pull the saddle off your horse's back when he's 15 or 16 years old and see his back all sagged down, high withered, and looking like an old worn-out ranch gilding, then yes, you owe it to your horse to teach him to travel correctly. 
You see, if he can travel correctly, then you're going to maintain that horse's health. You're going to maintain his efficiency because we don't, we're not even going to go into what happens if the horse's bag, uh, back sags and what happens to the horse's back legs and hind legs and why they spread out so far. We're not going to talk about that today, but we are saying this, that we owe it to our horses to train them and condition them in every aspect so that the horse can actually travel more efficient and be more productive for us and at the same time have long-term health. And I think we owe it to our horses to do that. So why do we bend and flex our horses? To keep them straight. And there might be an underlying message there that says maybe to prolong their health and their joint condition as well. Great lesson to learn. I, I, I hadn't, you know, I've heard you talk about this before, but I hadn't thought about it quite in, in that way. So that's, this is real helpful, the, the whole concept of, of bending them to keep them straight and making it easier for them to do their job, whether, whether we want to show them or compete on them or whether we just want to enjoy them for, you know, a, a lot of years of trail rides and pasture rides. So you bet. I love, love that. Now, granted, like in the show arena, everything, just like everything else, in the show arena, everything is amplified, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, there's like in raining, I don't want to sound like I'm picking on raining, but where is the need to ever slide a horse 20 or 30 feet? I mean, there's no need for that in the real world. So stopping and stopping correctly, which takes a tremendous amount of balance and correctness on the horses and willingness too, for that matter, for the horse to be able to do that. But there's no real practical use for that back at the home and back at the ranch. The stopping is, but sliding 20 or 30 feet is not. So we understand. <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually done that. So, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. we got to get you doing that because it'll, it'll just make your butt pucker. I swear to God, it'll just make your butt pucker. It's just so much fun. <laughs> I, I joked around with a guy the other day. I says, you know what? I bet you you've got a smiley face planted on your saddle seat because your butt's smiling so big. But oh. nonetheless, it, 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 it is. It's really fun, but there's really no practical purpose in it. But our everyday riders owe it to their horses ever bit as much. And quite frankly, I hear a cop out when I say somebody, when I hear someone say to me, oh, I don't need that because I just trail ride. Oh my goodness, you need it more than anybody because you're on your horse's back a whole heck of a lot longer than the average trainer is. And you need it a lot more even the average cowboy, because, you know, we might be on that horse's back four or five hours, but if you go on a trail ride, you might be on that horse's back for two or three days in a row and for several hours each ride. So you need it more. And another reason, the bending and the flexing gets the horse softer and supple, more discipline, if you will, in their face. And, and you get, over time, you get more body control of your horse. And again, in an arena, we've got a controlled environment to ride in. These folks that go on long trail rides out in the wilderness, they're not in a controlled environment. If something goes wrong out there, you are SOL. So I just like to tell people, you know, don't discount what you do. Say, oh, I just trail ride. Take the just off. Because don't discount it with the just word. Let's say, hey, man, I trail ride. That's incredibly dangerous. What can I do to make that safer for me? Develop a stronger relationship with your horse. Get them to travel straight. Get them to travel efficient. Feel like you've got better control of the horse's nose, hips, and shoulders. In other words, all those things that we're talking about for the performance horse, I'm talking about for the quote-unquote just trail riding horse, too, because your life depends on it. It depends on it. This is, it depends on it in the arena as well, but even more so when we're riding outside of those controlled environment situations. So there you go. There those you go. Of us who, those of us who aren't in the arena still need to, to learn how to do these things and teach our horses and, and ourselves to do things correctly. 
And you know what? Um, Another thing too, Laura, it just looks cool. When you've got a horse that just travels around really cool looking, if nothing else, I mean, who's going to drive, you know, an old beat up car when you can drive a Cadillac? I mean, you know, and the, and the same thing happens with your horses. You know, we can all ride plugs and plugs are very affordable, but it doesn't take that much more effort to get that horse to travel around looking cool, you know? So yeah. everything else aside, why not just look good? <laughs> <laughs> And there you have it. <laughs> Lots of good reasons to learn how to do this stuff. And uh, I know we'll be talking about it more in future episodes, both the reasons why and the and the how to, uh, which you're very good at teaching about. I'm guessing that uh, folks may have some questions about the, the things you've talked about today. And uh, I'd like to invite listeners to reach out to you with those questions and comments either in the show notes for this episode, which you'll find on the website at vanhargis.com. Just click on the podcast tab and look for episode 35, and you can leave comments right there. You can uh, visit the Van Hargis Horsemanship Facebook page, and if you haven't already liked that page, visit there because that's where you're going to learn some what's going on new with Van Hargis and Van Hargis Horsemanship, but you can also leave comments and questions there and Van will be sure to respond. And if you've got questions or comments or suggestions that you'd like to maybe not share in a public way, you can email those to, to Van at info at vanhargis.com and he'll be sure to respond either personally or in an upcoming episode. Maybe at some point, Van, we can do a questions episode where we just answer listener questions that have come in. That would be way cool. That'd be really fun. We we do yeah, get so, quite a few, and I try to answer those via email responses and that sort of thing. And oftentimes I'll ask, you know, can I use this question on a future podcast? And I'm very proud to say that most people are, are very willing to do that. But wouldn't that be cool to, to do a yeah, whole series or a whole? To, yeah. yeah. I thought I just had at the moment, but yeah, in, in some future time, save up some of those questions and we can kind of do a, a Q&A kind of episode. For listeners who are enjoying this episode and the podcast in general, we would love it if you would help spread the word about Ride Every Stride. Tell your friends, show them how to subscribe. If you've got some maybe technologically challenged friends who've got a, a, a smartphone but don't know how to subscribe to podcasts, show them how to do it so they can listen in and learn as well. And consider, if you haven't already done so, um, visiting the Ride Every Stride page on iTunes and leave a review there. It does a couple of things. It encourages Van, lets him know if he's on the right track with the topics that he's talking about, but it also helps make the show more visible. The more reviews a show gets, somehow in the magic of iTunes, it makes it a little more visible and more people can find the show. And so I know Van appreciates your feedback and your help in spreading the word about the podcast. Van, you've got an upcoming event. As we're recording this, I know you're getting ready to go keynote at an, kind of an important event in the horsemanship world. You want to tell listeners about that? You bet, Laura. January the 13th through the 17th, we're going to be in Denver, Colorado. Most people refer to this event as the Denver Market, but for other folks, they refer to it as WESA, which is the Western English Sales Association, and it's like this big, giant thing. If you can imagine going into a feed store or going into a Western store, anything to do with even remotely to do with horses or the horse industry, whether it be Wingless or Western, it's at the Denver market. So every manufacturer out there that's got products to sell that eventually finds its way into the stores, it's at this market. 
And this is the second or third, I think this is the third year that I've been asked to come and speak at this event. And like everything, I always consider these events, I'm always incredibly honored to speak at them. But the reason I like this one so much is that it's mainly to support the the industry in which everybody goes and buys their stuff. And I just, that's why I'm so deeply honored. It's one thing when I get to go to a, an expo or a clinic and speak, but when I get to go represent the industry, that just really makes me excited. I'm just incredibly honored that I get an opportunity to do that. And thank you to the WISA folks for inviting me. But uh, we would encourage folks to uh, to, to come out and see us at, at that event. Again, that's January the 13th to the 17th in Denver, Colorado at the Western English Sales Association. So that'd be a really cool thing for people to come by and visit us, Laura. And you have this uh, on your calendar on the website? Yes, ma'am. We certainly do. Yeah, so folks can find more information there and maybe a link to get more info. So if you are going to be or can be in Denver in January, stop in and say hi to Van at the Denver market. Anything else uh, we want folks to know about before we wrap up? Well, I want to remind everybody again, we know we've talked about it over the last several episodes, but yet it's real important that they go to the website and they check out the Van Hargis Top Hand Club. What is that? Well, just in a nutshell, it is an opportunity for people to go there. And, and a lot of the things that we're talking about on the podcast, we actually put into visual. In other words, we're doing some things for training videos, all sorts of different things that you can imagine to do with your horses and little bitty short bite-sized video clips. Our goal is to have an endless supply of those videos. And for $4.95, that's what it takes to be a member to the Van Hargis Top Pen Club, you have access to that endless library. You also, Laura, have access to all of the products on our, our Van Hargis store. But the cool thing is, if you're a member, you get everything on our store, everything in our store, as well as a few specialty items from time to time at a really good discount. There's going to be some items that's going to be available only to Top Hand members. And we've not posted any of the really cool stuff yet. We're just uh, kind of acquiring some of those things to put on the website. But those who are what we call charter members, in other words, those who sign up first, they get it for $4.95 for as long as they're a member. They get it to keep at that price and they get access to those discounts and they also get access to specialty items. And those discounts also apply to a lot of our clinics and other things that we're doing around the country. And with clinics mentioned, Laura, we are in the market to go new places. So anybody interested in hosting a clinic, I would love for them to um, call us. There's actually a, th- a thing on our website that gives them all the information that they need on how to get us there, what what our requirements are, and um, and all the information that they need is there on the website. They can just find that that button on the website and go there and get us at their areas. We definitely want to go out and see the public more, not just at the expos, but also at these clinics. All we need to make that happen is for people to contact us and invite us to your area, and we'll work out the details. So the place to be is at vanhargis.com. You're going to find all kinds of information and resources on the website. That's where you can find the store where you'll find the products that Van uses and can vouch for. In many cases, has designed it himself, working with the manufacturers. You're going to find, of course, the information about or a button where you can click to learn how to join the Top Hand Club. And my goodness, um, for $4.95, $4.95 a month, you're going to pay for that, you know, a year's worth in the first discount that you get in, in materials you buy from the store. So 
It's only the charter members that get that $4.95 a month fee to be a member of the Top Hand Club. The price is going to go up and you want to get in on it now. Although, I don't know, as you were talking about the stuff at the Denver market and, and then the various things in your store, I'm thinking, you know, maybe some of the horse husbands would rather their horse-loving wives didn't know about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, guys. But, yeah, uh, oops. <laughs> yeah, but definitely check this out. It's such a great bargain and, and so many resources there and more to come. Van has big plans to continually add to the value of the Top Hand Club membership. So, Visit the website. Again, that's at vanhargis.com. That's where you find the show notes for the podcast. It's where you find his calendar. You find all kinds of fun stuff there. So check that out. I think that's it, Van. Any last words for the listeners? I can't think of a thing, Laura, other than I just want to extend my gratitude to everybody for listening. Thank you so much. And uh, until next time, remember, it's your ride, your trail, it's your journey. So ride every stride. Mm-hmm.